Ils ont osé. Ils ont réussi. They dared. They have succeeded. Captain Serrault, French Army Liaison to the British Fourth Army, the Somme, 14th July, 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast episode 13, the Somme, Bazenton Ridge, Second strike on the Somme. Just as we discussed in episodes 11 and 12, in July of 1916, the British Fourth Army needed to clear Contomaison Village, Mamet's Wood, and Trones Wood on its attack front in order to launch a major strike on the German second defense line. And now, as we discussed in the last two episodes, those objectives were now taken or on their way to being secured. The time had come to hit the Germans sitting on Bazentin Ridge. BEF 4th Army Commander General Sir Henry Rawlinson had spent the days since the very mixed and disastrous results of the 1st of July planning the next big attack on the Germans. What we are going to see in this episode is a British success story. And mind you, it's a World War I success story, so please don't get your hopes up too much. Sorry. The reason this is being brought up is because Raleigh's plan for the 14th July attack on the Somme brought in two elements necessary for success on this modern and industrial battlefield. Innovation and a crushing artillery bombardment. How Rawlinson and his generals arrived there, though, was dictated more by the specific needs of this operation than any notion of lesson learned from the costliest day in the history of British arms. Here was the deal. The attack front ran 6,000 yards long, from Troneswood and Waterloo Farm in the east, through the villages of Longueval with its attached Delville Wood, Basington les Grandes with its wood, and Basington les Petits with its wood. The villages and their woods sat on high ground, so the attacking Tommies of the 13th, the 15th, and the Cavalry Corps faced an uphill slope with no cover. Naturally, this meant likely catastrophic casualties and failure of the attack. Between the 13th and 15th Corps, 22,000 soldiers were allotted for the offensive within the Greater Somme Offensive. The 13th Corps on the right, or eastern end of the attack zone, was to seize Longueval village, Delville Wood, and Bazentin Le Grand village. To its left, the 15th Corps was to grab Bazentin Le Grand Wood, Bazentin Le Petit, and Bazentin Le Petit Wood. The Cavalry Corps would be on hand to exploit any opportunity that presented itself for exploitation. And the reserve army to the north would push on Ovier and Pozier villages as a diversion. The problem was that between this German second defense position and the British Army's new frontline trace lay up to 1,500 meters of no man's land. This wide gap between the Tommies and their objectives severely diminished the chance for success 
because as they ran across towards the enemy, the enemy would have more than enough time to set up his machine guns for the oncoming attack. It would be the 1st of July repeated. Deja vu all over again. The innovation part mentioned earlier was how Rawlinson and his corps commanders proposed to deal with the no man's land issue. Under cover of darkness and with a roaring artillery bombardment to mask all of the noise, all of the leading assault battalions would creep out into the open and assemble in no man's land as close as possible to the enemy's trenches. White tapes would be laid out for all of the attacking troops, pointing them in the dark towards their objectives. Thousands of men, many of them rather new at the business of soldiering, would take on this complicated task of assembling in the dark with their platoons, companies, and battalions within range of their enemy, who would be getting trampled to death just a hundred or so meters by a firestorm of artillery shells. It was pretty optimistic. The crushing artillery bombardment, the second part of Rawlinson's plan, was to be just that. With a thousand artillery pieces at his disposal for this operation, 300 of them heavy guns, Rawlinson planned to fire half a million shells at Bazantan Ridge over the course of three days. The artillery would be focusing on the 6,000 yards of attack front, as well as the 12,000 yards of supporting terrain and trenches behind the front line. Just prior to the roughly 3.20 a.m. assault time, the artillery would double its output into five minutes worth of hurricane fire, an intense drum fire shelling that would flatten or subdue any remaining German troops. These last five minutes would also be short enough to not give away that an attack was coming, like longer bombardments usually did. British Expeditionary Force Commander-in-Chief, General Sir Douglas Haig, did not agree with this plan, and he said no to the night assault. He didn't think regular army soldiers could pull this off in peacetime, never mind these volunteers and newbies of Kitchener's mobs. Haig proposed breaching the left flank of the German second position and then rolling up the enemy towards the Somme. The French army, too, did not agree with Rawlinson's battle plan. Their reasoning was basically, oh my god, these fools are going to screw us. French officers thought the plan foolish and called it an operation, quote, for amateurs, by amateurs, end quote. They worried the British would bungle the attack, get counterattacked, and lose all of their hard-won gains, and then leave the French 20th Corps' flank in the air, the term used for exposed and unprotected. French officers were also appalled at the trouble Britain was having ramping up its shell production, even with the Battle of the Somme consuming an enormous quantity of ammunition, British shell production matched only a quarter of the millions of shells the French were pumping out every month. As British troops struggled to capture the ruins of Contemaison and the shell-shattered stumps of Mametz and Trones Woods, Rawlinson and his two corps commanders went to work to convince Haig that the night assault would work. It took two days of patient insistence, but Raleigh, 13th Corps' General Congreve, 
and 15th Corps' General Horn got Haig to come around to the idea. Haig then went and promised the French a victory on the 14th, which was Bastille Day. So it was on. Even as shells pounded into Contomaison, pummeling the village's ruins, even as shells tore apart trees and men in Mamet's wood and Trone's wood, 1,000 British guns opened up on Bazenton Ridge on the 11th of July. It was something to see. Quote, the whole horizon seemed to be bursting shells in front of us and behind us flashing guns, unquote. Under General Rawlinson's plan, there would be no break in the preparatory bombardment this time. This shelling would prove to be 18 times stronger than the week-long barrage that had flailed the entire Somme front in the week before the 1st of July. As a distraction, 4th Army guns blasted the German lines north of the Ancre as well. The bombardment cut off Bazenton Ridge from the rest of the German army. Fresh troops could not be brought forward, nor could ammunition, food, or water. For troops already under tremendous pressure since the beginning of the month, this new barrage brought fresh and impotent madness to the Germans hunkering down wherever they could. Of note as well, that day is the day that hundreds of kilometers to the east, in a brown strip of murdered nature north of Verdun, the German army was placed on the defensive definitively on the 11th. There were to be no more offensives at Verdun, not even local ones. The Somme was having its effect. Of course, this also meant that German manpower and resources would now be freed for the Somme-Schlacht. But on Bazenton Ridge, German soldiers were taking a terrible pounding. The state of the defenses there were best described by a Lieutenant Steuerwald of Reserve Infantry Regiment 91. The position presented a dismal sight, he wrote. It had been laid waste by the drum fire of the past few days. The line of the trench could barely be seen. Only through superhuman efforts could the entrances to the remaining dugouts, there were no more than six or seven for the whole sector, be kept open. There was insufficient cover for everyone because it was also home to elements of 3rd Battalion Bavarian Infantry Regiment 16, Infantry Regiment 184, two sharpshooter groups, and the 8th Company of Reserve Infantry Regiment 77. There was not a trace of a wire obstacle. Going back to episode 11, we talked about how German General von Falkenhayn had reshuffled sector responsibilities when he showed up on the 2nd of July to chew out General von Belov and his staff. Von Falkenhayn had reorganized sectors of responsibility north of the Somme, and relevant to this episode, 6th Army Corps had been designated a sector running from the Albert-Bapaume Road to south of the Somme. With the artillery now pounding Bazenton Ridge, one could safely bet the next British attack was coming there, although when was anyone's guess? Sectors were redivided, and the area between the River Ancre and Longueval village would be assigned to Gruppe Armen, under command of the very capable General Friedrich Bertram VI von Armen. 
Von Armin was stepping into a veritable crap storm. The psalm front assigned to him was a wall of thunderous drum fire. At night, the roar never ceased, and the night sky seemed caught in an agony of muzzle flashes. During the day, Besantown Ridge and its villages lay shrouded in smoke, brick dust, and orange shell bursts. There was no idea how much was left of the units caught in the maelstrom up there, nor of what type of resistance they'd offer when the Tommies lifted their guns and sent their men over the top. Armin did have one thing going for him, though. The units on the ridge belonged to the 183rd Division, and the 7th Division was on its way to the front to relieve the 183rd. So von Armin had an additional 14 battalions available to him for whenever the strike came, although these battalions were thoroughly mixed up and disorganized from their chaotic march towards the Hellfire. Whenever the strike came was at 3.20 a.m. on the morning of the 14th of July. At that moment, the artillery increased to hurricane fire, which simply churned, pounded, and smashed everything and anything on the attack front. In the meantime, the assault troops of four British infantry divisions made their final creeping movements towards the German trench lines, some units getting as close as 50 yards. Thousands of men had moved into no man's land in the middle of the night as their artillery covered for them. This alone was a stunning success, and in hindsight, it shows that the men of the new armies were worth their salt as much as any regular or territorial. At 3.25 a.m., the drum fire lifted. From the extreme right of the attack front, in 13th Corps' sector, Tommies of the 18th Division moved into the smoke and tree stumps of Throne's Wood and cleared it of any remaining Germans, ruthlessly shooting anything that moved in the thick undergrowth as they pushed forward. Throne's Wood was secured in a few hours. To the north of Throne's Wood, the men of the 8th Black Watch, 10th Argyles, the 11th Royal Scots, and the 9th Scottish Rifles went after it and reached Delvio Wood at 3.25 a.m. without having fired a shot. It is an ironic beginning to the fight for this particular wood. Two lines of trenches were taken fast by the swarming Tommies, and in no time they were in Longueval village itself. The battered Germans still endeavored to put up a fight, as recounted by Reserve Oberleutnant Gerhardinger of the defending 2nd Battalion, 16th Bavarian Regiment at the southeast tip of the village. Unteroffizier Hofer arrived from our left flanking platoon and reported that the British had broken through in the sector of the 6th Company and were already pressing forward to Longueval and to our rear. I shouted at the gunner of a heavy machine gun of the 6th Company, that he should bring down fire on the British soldiers who were heading for Longueval, but he did not respond. So I dashed from the trench to the gun. My men, meanwhile, kept the heads down of the British in front of the obstacle with heavy small-arms fire. I threw myself down by the gunner and saw that he was dead, shot through the temples. Hardly had I prized his cramped grip off the handles of a gun 
pushed him to one side and tried to fire at the British platoon in the hollow road. Then the weapon jammed. It had been hit in the breech by a rifle bullet. I yanked the belt out of the gun, grabbed another from the ammunition box, wrapped them around me and raced back to the trench through the fire of the British infantrymen who were only 25 to 30 meters away in front of the obstacle. Meanwhile, the British were firing at us from windows and holes in the roofs of Longueval. A super heavy shell which impacted in the embankment of the road to Guillemont, about three or four meters away, sent me and another man flying. But fortunately, it was a dud. We then shot down a few sections of British infantry near Longueval from a range of 80 to 100 meters. All of these activities took place within 10 minutes. But the Scots were successful in seizing part of Longueval by 10 a.m. that morning, and they had dug in on the southern edge of Delville Wood as well. Those of you who have heard the name Delville Wood before know that name will be coming up very soon. To the southeast, an attack on the ruins of a sugar refinery named Waterloo Farm on the maps made no progress. To their left, the men of the 3rd Division were set to attack the Germans between Longueval on the right and bazentin les grandes on the left, focusing on the ground in between the villages and bazentin les grandes itself. From the official British history of the Great War comes the account of this particular attack. At 3.20 a.m., the whole sky behind the waiting infantry of the four attacking divisions seemed to open with a great roar of flame. For five minutes, the ground in front was alive with bursting shells, whilst the machine guns, firing on lines laid out just before dark the previous evening, pumped streams of bullets to clear the way. When the barrage lifted at 3.25 a.m., the leading companies rose and advanced through the ground mist at a steady pace. There was just enough light to distinguish friend from foe. Surprised by the shortness of the intensive and most effective bombardment, by the deployment of the stormers so near in the dark, and by the creeping barrage of high explosive, the enemy made but a feeble and spasmodic resistance to the first onslaught. The leading British wave reached the German wire before a shot was fired and in the hostile trenches the only serious opposition came from men who rushed from dugouts and shelters after the first wave had passed to engage those which followed. The enemy counter-barrage, when it came down a little later, fell in Caterpillar Valley, behind the assaulting troops. Frederick Manning, Private 19022, who went on to pen the gritty but authentic memoir, Her Private's We, was a soldier in the 7th Shropshire Light Infantry that attacked that day. He recounted his experiences through the eyes of his autobiographical character, Private Bourne, who woke from a dream to recall the day's earlier events. At last, unable to ignore the sense of misery which filled him, he sat up and lit the inevitable cigarette. The formless terrors haunting their sleep took shape for him. His mind reached back into the past day, groping among obscure and broken memories, for it seemed to him now that the greater part of the time he had been stunned and blinded, and that what he had seen, he had seen in sudden 
vivid flashes, instantaneously. He felt again the tension of waiting that became impatience, and then the immense effort to move, and the momentary relief which came with movement, the sense of unreality and dread which descended on one and some restoration of balance as one saw other men moving forward in a way that seemed commonplace, mechanical, as though at some moment of ordinary routine. The restraint and the haste that fought against it with every voice in one's being crying out to hurry. Hurry? One cannot hurry, alone, into nowhere, into nothing. Every impulse created immediately its own violent contradiction. The confusion and tumult in his own mind was inseparable from the senseless fury about him, each reinforcing the other. He saw great chunks of the German line blown up as the artillery blasted away for them. Clouds of dust and smoke screened their advance, but the Huns searched for them scrupulously. The air was alive with the rush and flutter of wings. It was ripped by screaming shells, hissing like tons of molten metal plunging suddenly into water. There was the blast and concussion of their explosion, men smashed, obliterated in sudden eruptions of earth, rent and strewn in bloody fragments, shells that were like hellcats humped and spitting, little sounds unpleasantly close, like the plucking of tense strings, and something tangling his feet, tearing at his trousers and putties as he stumbled over it, and then a face suddenly, an inconceivably distorted face which raved and sobbed at him as he fell with it into a shell hole. He saw with astonishment the bare arse of a Scotsman who had gone into action wearing only a kilt apron, and then they righted themselves and looked at each other, bewildered and humiliated. There followed a moment of perfect lucidity while they took a breather, and he found himself, though unwounded, wondering with an insane prudence where the nearest dressing station was. Other men came up. Two more Gordons joined them. And then Mr. Halliday, who flung himself on top of them and, keeping his head well down, called them a lot of bloody skulkers. He had a slight wound in the forearm. They made a rush forward again, the dust and smoke clearing a little, and they heard the elastic twang of Mills bombs as they reached an empty trench, very narrow where shelling had not wrecked or leveled it. Mr. Halliday was hit again in the knee, before they reached the trench, and Bourne felt something pluck the front of his tunic at the same time. They pulled Mr. Halliday into the trench and left him with one of the Gordons who had also been hit. Men were converging there, and he went forward with some of his own company again. From the moment he had thrown himself into the shell hole with the Scotsman, something had changed in him. The conflict and tumult of his mind had gone. His mind itself seemed to have gone, to have contracted and hardened within him. Fear remained, an implacable and restless fear, but that too seemed to have been beaten and forged into a point of exquisite sensibility to have become indistinguishable from hate. Only the instincts of the beast survived in him. Every sense was alert, and in that tension was some poignancy. He neither knew where he was, nor whither he was going, he could have no plan because he could foresee nothing. Everything happening was inevitable and unexpected. He was an act in a whole chain of acts. And, though his movements had to conform to those of others spontaneously, as part of some infinitely flexible plan, which he could not comprehend very clearly even in regard to its immediate object, he could rely on no one but himself. 
they worked round a point still held by machine guns, through a rather intricate system of trenches linking up shell craters. The trenches were little more than bolt holes, through which the machine gunners, after they had held up the advancing infantry as long as possible, might hope to escape to some other appointed position further back and resume their work, thus gaining time for the troops behind to recover from the effect of the bombardment and emerge from their hiding places. They were singularly brave men, these Prussian machine gunners, but the extreme of heroism, alike in foe or friend, is indistinguishable from despair. Bourne found himself playing again a game of his childhood, though not now among rocks from which reverberated heat quivered in wavy films, but in made fissures too chalky and unweathered for adequate concealment. One has not, perhaps, at thirty years the same zest in the game as one had at thirteen, but the sense of danger brought into play a latent experience which had become a kind of instinct with him, and he moved in those torturous ways with the furtive cunning of a stoat or weasel. Stooping low at an angle in the trench, he saw the next comparatively straight length empty, and when the man behind was too close to him, ran forward still stooping. The advancing line hung up at one point, inevitably tended to surround it, and it was suddenly abandoned by the few men holding it. Born, running, checked, as a running hun rounded the further angle, precipitately. Saw him stop, shrink back into a defensive posture, and fired without lifting the butt of his rifle quite level with his right breast. The man fell shot in the face, and someone screamed at Born to go on. The body choked the narrow angle, and when he put his foot on it, squirmed or moved, making him check again, fortunately, as a bomb exploded a couple of yards round the corner. He turned, dismayed, on the man behind him, but behind the bomber he saw the grim bulk of Captain Mallet and his strangely exultant face, and born incapable of articulate speech, could only wave a hand to indicate the way he divined the Huns to have gone. Captain Mallet swung himself above ground, and the men following overflowed the narrow channel of the trench, but the two waves, which had swept round the machine gun post, were now on the point of meeting, Men bunched together, and there were some casualties among them before they went to ground again. Captain Mallet gave him a word in passing, and Bourne, looking at him with dull, uncomprehending eyes, lagged a little to let others intervene between them. He had found himself immediately afterwards next to Company Sergeant Major Glasspool, who nodded to him swiftly and appreciatively, and then Bourne understood he was doing the right thing. The 3rd Division's 8th Brigade was held up by uncut wire, but soon enough there was a breakthrough. In the 9th Brigade sector, the Germans' first trench line was taken fast. The second trench line was reached soon after, and Tommies entered Bazentin-les-Grand. They had to be careful, however, as the British artillery was working the ruins over until 4.30 a.m. Once the guns lifted for points farther back, Men of the 13th King's Liverpool Infantry locked themselves into a close-quarters fight for the next five hours. In the end, the 11th Northumberland Fusiliers rushed in to assist, and together they took the ruins of the village. Moving west, the 7th Division, back in the line after just a few scant days of rest and refit, shouldered against the 3rd and faced Bazentin-les-Petits. North of Flat Iron Copse and Mamet's Wood, the men of the 7th had crept within 50 yards of the German lines during the hurricane fire. 
At 3.25 a.m., the British rushed into the German front line to find that the Germans had been largely wiped out by the terrible bombardment. Some Germans seen retreating were promptly mowed down. The snout, a reinforced position north of the hammerhead at Mamet's Wood, was seized. Bazintan Les Petit village was cleared by 7.30 a.m., although a German counterattack threw them out of the northern part of the village an hour later. Bazintan Les Petit was retaken. Despite taking enfilade fire from a place called High Wood on the map, British infantry launched into a desperate and brutal fight for the village that saw hand-to-hand fighting and no quarter given. A new German counterattack was broken by the concentrated efforts of the 2nd Warwicks and 20th Manchesters. The Germans left a carpet of dead and dying as they pulled back. It was much the same at Bazentin Les Petit Wood with the men of the 21st Division. Giles Eyre, in his memoir Psalm Harvest, captured the description of the hurricane fire that rained down on the Germans just ahead of him. A terrific thrumming din brought us to our feet with a jerk and we ran to the parapet. In the murk of late night, the flashing red glares of the bursts were enveloping the whole length the German advanced and support lines, throwing the scene into awesome and vivid relief. The German front system appeared as a blazing, blinding wall of terrible dancing and leaping ruddy flames. Tongues of fire licked up, rising into the air, and the wood became etched in crimson light. Huge spouts of earth, as if pushed by giant hands, spouted high into the air continually, the undulating clouds lit momentarily by the yellow and crimson stabs of the bursts. Green and red rockets soared up far over the trees from the tortured, heaving enemy trenches. All previous bombardments appeared to me like child's play in comparison. I glanced around at the awestruck, pale-faced men peering over the parapets with stark amazement and fear in their glaring eyes. The roar of the whizzing shells overhead and the awful noise of the crashes made all speech impossible. Minute after minute, the noise increased until our eardrums hammered like mad, and the quivering air, laden with the acrid tang of explosives, became difficult to breathe. My heart was thumping heavily, rapidly. My pulses beat quicker, and even our trenches shook and quivered and rocked about at the shock of this tremendous burst of fire. Most of the men were gripped by unplumbed horror, and yet at the same time uplifted to the extent that space and time ceased to have any meaning. We were living in a world where flames, pandemonium, and death held undisputed sway, and our living bodies were as nothing. The guns with a last soul blasting sound increased their rate of fire and hurled a final, awful, thundering blast of shell at the heaps of heaving earth in front of us, and then as if hurled into oblivion by some unknown force, suddenly ceased. The instant of profound silence was more impressive than all the noise our ears had been subjected to. Then the shrill blasting of whistles as the lines of the attacking infantry swarmed towards the wrecked German line. At the same time, Another terrific surge of sound, the guns, having lengthened their ranges, hurled their massed loads of death into it and beyond the wood with rending crashes. Air, his battalion, the 6th Leicesters, 
and with the seventh Lesters to his left, rushed forward. Resistance was minimal, but as they kept going, they came under machine gun fire. From both their objective, Bazintan les Petits Wood, and Bazintan les Grands Wood, as enfilading fire cut into the assaulting units. The Lesters entered the Petit Wood and came under fire from snipers in the trees, as well as machine guns to their front. The assault on the wood steadily transformed into a wild melee, where the Germans gave heavy resistance but found they were losing ground regardless. The Germans, tied to the doctrine General von Falkenhayn had decreed, wasted no time in counterattacking the heavily depleted battalions of Leicester infantrymen. They hit back in the morning using their own devastating artillery response to cut off the British from any available support. Giles Air was in the thick of it. The Bosch machine guns blaze away furiously, and then, from the depths of the wood, emerges a surging mob of big, hefty-looking Huns, yelling like souls of the damned and rushing forward with fixed bayonets. Rapid fire! The Lewis guns are blazing away madly. We work our bolts frantically. Germans go down in heaps. We are chucking bombs frantically. Men are going down. Huns appear, scrambling over the obstacle and jumping in amongst us. Faces in huge gray uniforms appear before me through the eddies of smoke. I strike out and lunge. I reel, stumble, and fall amongst a heap of writhing figures. For an instant that seems a lifetime, I look up with wide, terrified eyes at a gigantic, steel-helmeted, red-faced Hun plunging at me with a bayonet. I await. I await with terror-stricken soul for the stroke that will send me to oblivion. When there is a flurry, a figure hurls itself like a battering ram at the Hun. A terrible yell goes up, and my assailant disappears in a shower of blood and crashes down against the sandbags clutching his stomach, with heels drumming and kicking at me. A rush of cocky figures suddenly appear from nowhere, roaring and stabbing at the Huns. I find myself on top of the barricade, yelling inanely, amid a roar of Lewis gunfire, while the survivors run off falling and stumbling, leaving a trail of dead and moaning figures behind them in the open. The German attack failed, although this didn't keep them from throwing another attack shortly afterwards. The Germans were pushed back until they held only the northwest corner of Bazentan les Petit Wood, and they launched a counterattack against Bazentan les Petit Village as well. By the evening of the 14th, Bazentan les Petit Wood, however, had been effectively cleared. Early in the morning of the 14th, recon elements of the British 15th Corps reported that High Wood, north of Bazentan les Grands, was empty. Rawlinson's exploitation arm, the Cavalry Corps, was called forward to seize the wood. Along the northern edge of High Wood ran a trench called the Switch Line that was already a part of the third position and could potentially be taken, further disrupting German defense efforts. When we think of World War I and cavalry, we almost always default to scenes like that of Tennyson's The Charge of the Light Brigade, only with drab uniforms and machine guns. But their job wasn't to charge forward at the enemy and break through his entrenched defenses. Rather, it was to take ground quickly if possible, and then hand it over to the infantry as soon as possible. They were also to strike out in recon if the conditions permitted, 
same as their French counterparts had done south of the Somme. After some confusion, the men of the 2nd Indian Cavalry Division were called up to come and grab High Wood, but it took a long time to get the horsemen into the battle zone on account of distance and then the terrible state of the artillery churned ground up to the front. Because of these delays, the Germans rushed one of their available battalions into the switch line at High Wood. The British 7th Division's Reserve Brigade, the 91st, was reassigned the job of pushing forward and taking High Wood. The Indian Cavalry was then told to support that advance's right flank. These horse soldiers of the 7th Dragoons and the 20th Deccan Horse did just that. Assisted by an RFC pilot who strafed a machine gun ahead of them, the cavalry advanced on the right of the 91st Brigade. They came under machine gun fire but pushed to clear German outposts between Highwood and Delview Wood. In the charge forward, some German infantrymen were actually spear-gored, adding yet another horrible way to die during World War I. The outpost line was cleared, and the cavalry dismounted to set up a screen. They dug in and waited until they were relieved by infantry later that night. Tragically slaughtered, they were not. And like Delville, High Wood is a name that will haunt us soon as well. To the very west edge of the attack front, during the evening of the 14th, units of the 34th Division pushed out patrols towards the village of Pozier, looking to test German defenses there. The Germans replied with a wall of machine gun fire, thus answering the patrols' questions. As the summer sun set on the Somme front that day, General Rawlinson and his 4th Army could look back on a day of hellish fighting, but also on a day of success. At their farthest, British battalions had advanced 1 to 2 kilometers forward on a front of about 5 to 6 kilometers for 9,000 casualties. As a very rough comparison, the 38th Welsh Division had taken 4,000 casualties in their attacks on Mamet's Wood, and Mamet's Wood was roughly one mile by three quarters of a mile. For World War I, the 14th of July was a solid success. It also showed that the way forward to continued success was to mass both artillery and infantry against the enemy in overwhelming numbers. In terms of losses, 9,000 men was no light matter. But compared to the ground gained two weeks before versus the losses taken then, this was again a definite bright spot in the Somme offensive. The Germans had been effectively shattered on Bazandon Ridge. It led Captain Soreau, French Army liaison to the British Fourth Army, to report to his command with a now famous quote that started our episode. The losses indeed were no light matter, as getting the wounded off the battlefield was a monumental task. As told by one brigade, Quartermaster Sergeant Bacon, at Bazantan Le Petit Wood. One of the greatest difficulties was that of evacuating the wounded. Casualties had been heavy, and dead and wounded were lying about in pitiful profusion all over the wood. The nearest field ambulance post was in Mamet's Wood, and all but the walking wounded needed to be carried the considerable distance under the most difficult of conditions. Moreover, the brigade had been so reduced in strength that only a few could be spared for stretcher-bearing, 
and even then it was a very long and tiring stumble with a loaded stretcher. Many of the wounded had perforce to lay in the wood with little or no attention for 30 or 40 hours, and this in many cases cost the man the loss of a limb, and in some cases his life. Some of the wounds were ghastly to look upon, and it was indeed a cruel and never-to-be-forgotten sight, and there was always the chance of the wounded being again hit, for the enemy never ceased to shell the wood or the open country behind. In later battles, the arrangements for the evacuation of the wounded were much improved, but on this occasion, at least, they were very ineffectual. The next day, it rained. The rain quickly turned the shell-torn earth into bottomless mud and trenches into knee and waist-deep streams. Nevertheless, the Germans threw new counterattacks at Besantin les Petit Wood and Village. Two flashpoints of utter hell, Delville and High Woods, began their descent into madness. Each of these woods will be discussed in episodes of their own. Over the next three days, from the 15th through the 17th of July, the British 4th Army, and the now German 1st Army, for that matter, saw little success, but much bloodshed. For the Tommies, the Germans' use of interlocking, enfilading fires from points behind the lines were deadly efficient at massacring attacks. But where to go from here now? Bazentown Ridge was taken, but General Rawlinson found that his men were boxed in as German resistance hardened once more, and in particular tough knots of defense lay on either side of them now, Pauzier on the left and Guillemot on the right. These points, as well as those of Devil Wood and Highwood, would need to be dealt with now, just as Desmonets were in my zone, my zone, and Tron's Tron's coming before before them. A song grind quickly returned, the ceaseless sound of guns pounding away confirming it. It reasserted itself and once more began chewing up the thousands of men thrust into its frontline jaws. Siegfried Sassoon caught the aftermath of the grind as he watched frontline units coming back after battle. An hour before dawn, the road was still an empty picture of moonlight. The distant gunfire had crashed and rumbled all night, muffled and terrific with immense flashes, like waves of some tumult of water rolling along the horizon. Now there came an interval of silence in which I heard a hoarse neigh, shrill and scared and lonely. Then the procession of returning troops began. The campfires were burning low when the grinding, jolting column lumbered back. The field guns came first, with nodding men sitting stiffly on wary horses, followed by wagons and limbers and field kitchens. After this rumble of wheels came the infantry, shambling, limping, straggling, and out of step. If anyone spoke, it was only a muttered word, and the mounted officers rode as if asleep. The men had carried their emergency water in petrol cans, against which bayonets made a hollow clink. Except for the shuffling of feet, this was the only sound. This grind was changing things. It was changing warfare itself. French General Fayol, commanding the 6th Army south of the Somme, noted feelings towards this change. 
the actual character of the war. Artillery and shortage of munitions. The art of war has disappeared. Mechanical means. The importance of air power. The start of aerial warfare. The German artillery blinded. The troops unaccustomed to maneuvering. They are numbed by trench war and their outlook is distorted, particularly the artillerymen who will not cross over the smallest ditches. The grind on the Somme was turning war into a battle of men and materiel. Rather, it was turning into a war of men against materiel. The slaughter fields at Verdun had already seen this change. Now the Somme was feeling it. Soon enough, the whole war would transition to a more industrial form of killing, like that scene at Verdun and the Somme. But that's where we are for now. Next episode, we'll cover the apocalyptic battle within the battle for Delville Wood. I want to give a very hearty thanks to everyone who has recently donated to the podcast. Thank you so much, and it is greatly appreciated. And I am humbled by your generosity and kindness. If you enjoy the podcast and want to make a financial contribution towards keeping the server lines open or towards the gathering of more research material, please visit firstworldwarpodcast.com. There is a PayPal button there that will let you make the donation of your choice. If you are unable to make a donation but still want to help, there's plenty you can do. Tell people about the podcast. You can also help by posting a review on iTunes. Leave a starred review if you're on the go, which I understand is how most of us live these days. But if you have time and can leave a few thoughts, that's just awesome. Either way, you really are helping the podcast. Okay, any questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or... Hit me up on the Twitter at at World War One Podcast, WW1 Podcast. Uh, I found that Twitter is, uh, is great fun and full of useful links and information. Um, but you can also go through the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, or the Battles of the First World War Podcast page on the Facebook. As always, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the BFWWP. Talk to you again soon. Take care.